Nearly every state has now made at least some move toward easing coronavirus restrictions, but the economic consequences of them have been unavoidable. Today, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell offered his sober assessment of the U.S. economy, beaten back by weeks of shutdowns aimed at slowing the spread of the virus. We are seeing a severe decline in economic activity and in and employment, and already the job gains of the last decade have been erased. Powell said the scope and speed of this downturn are without modern precedent. The result could be an extended period of low productivity growth and stagnant incomes. And the burden, he said, has fallen on those least able to bear it. Among people who were working in February, almost 40 percent of those in households making less than $40,000 a year had lost a job in March. This reversal of economic fortune has caused a level of pain that is hard to capture in words as lives are upended amid great uncertainty about the future. Powell appeared to rule out negative interest rates by the Federal Reserve and instead appealed to Congress to provide additional fiscal support. It could be costly, he said, but worth it if it helps avoid long-term economic damage. Tourism generates $70 billion in New York City's economy and is responsible for about 400,000 jobs. To get it going again, NYC and Company, the city's tourism board, started a group to champion museums, hotels, theater, and restaurants. Fred Dixon is NYC and Company's president and CEO. There are going to be tourists again in Times Square? Yes, there will be. Uh, we don't know the timeline um, as, as yet, but, but there, there absolutely will be a, a day when this is hopefully behind us and, and people will resume traveling again. How's it going to happen? It is so hard right now to imagine millions of people coming into New York City the, the way they once did just a few months ago. No, it's true. And, and there's a lot left to be known. And the, the important announcement that we put out this morning was that our coalition has come together. So much in the way that our industry uh, came together after 9-11, when we formed the New York Rising uh, Coalition at that time, we've done that again, calling on our, some of our best and brightest across the five boroughs, across all sectors, um, to bring the best thinkers together, because there, there is no playbook uh, for this crisis. Uh, we know we've been through crisis before, and New York always uh, you know, is resilient and finds a way through. And we feel, that, we feel strongly that we will again here. Uh, it's just a very different mountain to climb. What lessons did you learn from 9-11 that might apply now at this time of coronavirus recovery? Yeah, there are, there are some good lessons. Uh, from 9-11, while it was a very different um, tragedy uh, to what we're experiencing now, the one thing that we realized was that health and safety came first, and we had to make people feel comfortable traveling again. And that, that wasn't just here in New York, but that was at their homes, wherever they were, happened to be in the U.S. or around the world. And, it's gonna, this, and that's going to be important here, too. It's a, it's a very different kind of safety, um, but the, the confidence amongst the public to not only leave their home, but to begin to, at some point, begin to travel again is going to be key. You have some pretty impressive people working with you. Ellen Futter of the Museum of Natural History, Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course, of, of, of Hamilton and Broadway, Danny Meyer of, of Shake Shack. You've really got a cross-section of what brings people into the city. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, uh, the diversity of the group was, was really key to us, um, not only representing the different sectors of the industry, but different communities across the city. Um, you'll see a lot of arts and culture in there as well. Um, we do feel like arts and culture in many ways will be one of the, one of the first draws, hopefully, to bring people back to New York. 
we need to make sure that everything that New York is famous for um, is there again for, for people to, to return to. So whether that's Broadway, whether that's our great museums, it's, it's also shopping, um, but then dining. Uh, you know, New York is, is known, of course, for its, its remarkable culinary scene, and, and it's going to be important that we, we help them get back on their feet as soon as possible. Broadway has already said that performances are canceled through at least September 6th. Um, how big a hit to tourism is coronavirus causing? It, it's significant, I and mean, there, there's no question um, that this is a this is a difficult hit um, to the industry. That there's there's no comparison to other to other uh, instances. I mean, there's been tragedies, obviously 9/11, chief among them, uh, but this is this is prolonged. So one of the first steps is literally to reconnect New Yorkers to their city, um, uh, in in compliance with the guidelines from both the city and the state. As we know, what businesses can reopen and, and welcome customers again, and will obviously be in a, in a new fashion. Um, we know that New Yorkers, you know, will initially come out and, and begin to reengage with their cities. Are you confident that all the restaurants are going to come back? All the museums are going to reopen. All the Broadway shows will dazzle again. Well, we know we feel confident that that the industries uh, of New York that it's most famous for, the ones you just called out, um, Broadway, you know, its famous culinary scene, arts and culture. Um, we know that that they're strong, and we know that they will survive. Will they be different? Most likely. In talking across the industry, though, I can tell you um, there's an enormous amount of passion um, and, and fortitude amongst the business community. A lot of questions, of course, still, but everyone is determined to come out of this. Good to hear. Fred Dixon at NYC and Company. Coronavirus just seems to be rewriting every playbook of our lives, including how we cope with death. Making decisions about how to grieve and honor loved ones who have died is difficult enough. The pandemic has only made it more so. George Kelder is chief executive of the New Jersey State Funeral Directors Association. The CDC has issued new guidelines about safe funerals because the death has just been overwhelming. Typically in the state of New Jersey, 6,100 people die each month. When you're looking at the figures that are being reported out of death certificates filed, we are about to add 10,000 additional deaths on top of that over a 45-day period. Um, so overwhelmed is really an understatement at this time. Uh, we're seeing numbers that we have never historically ever seen in our careers prior. And this has been not only overwhelming for you, but for the families that you're serving, many of whom have become sick with coronavirus after attending a funeral service. Funeral homes in the state of New Jersey have been operating under an administrative order for the last 40, 45 days that limits the public aspect of a funeral to less than 10 people. Um, that's been extremely difficult for many next of kin in that uh, there are prohibitions in hospital and healthcare facility settings as well. So you might be admitting your spouse or your brother or your parent into a hospital or a nursing home and have not physically been able to be with them or see them for 60 days. And then to find out from the funeral home that we need to limit the amount of people that can say their goodbyes and visit with the decedent uh, to less than 10 people, I think is overwhelming for a lot of people. I mean, it's almost cruel, but I suppose it's necessary. It, it may come across as cold and cruel on the, uh, you know, when you first learn about what the directives are. We, these limitations are in place so that you yourselves do not become ill, so that our staff does not become ill and we can continue serving the community. 
I think the families understand it. Uh, our job is really to stop the community spread through uh, breathing and air droplets with one another in close proximity. What does that mean for, for the different funeral rites and, and rituals? Um, I, I think all of the funeral rites and rituals can, can fall within this. Uh, the problems that occur is when individuals have larger family units or they're pillars of the community or active in law enforcement, clergy, and uh, the community would be accustomed to a much larger outpouring of individuals at a funeral home. Um, so it is, it is putting a damper on the immediate needs of ritual around the disposition of the dead. Um, but what we're advising families to do is consider what the memorial event will look like in the future. Once the restrictions are lifted, once the pandemic is behind us, how do you want the community to come out and uh, extend their condolences and sympathies to you at that time? When your next door neighbor dies, uh, we're a food people. Your neighbors show up with casseroles and, and, and they, they come over with well wishes. Everyone is in isolation. So death and grief is complicated and compounded at this time. Um, I think there will be a lot of future issues for those in health care, those in death care, and those who lost loved ones during this time, um, where you're dealing with the sudden isolation and loss of the admittance into a hospital, and then you're dealing with the ultimate death, and then you're dealing with the limitations that were placed on you and the community not coming around and supporting you, and then maybe six months from now in the fall, you reopen that and you have to peel that scab back and let it all reheal. It's going to be a difficult time for a lot of people. George Kelder, CEO of the New Jersey State Funeral Directors Association. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thanks, Aaron. And with me now is ABC Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Ashton, I know that you were following mm-hmm. four plus hours of testimony yesterday. Dr. Fauci and other doctors right. on the coronavirus task force testified. There was a lot of discussion about immunity and this new strain of coronavirus. What do we know? This was a big topic in that four hour testimony, Amy, yesterday. And so when we talk about immunity, I want to encourage people to think of a number of different elements here. Number one, what does our body naturally do when exposed? exposed to COVID-19, when exposed to the virus, how can that protection, those antibodies, be possibly used therapeutically or preventatively? And then the questions about immunity have a lot of bearing on the vaccine. So here's what we know at this point. A general principle of immunology is that when we are exposed to a viral infection, our bodies make antibodies. These antibodies can have different levels. We call them titers. They can last a variable amount of time and they have different blocking ability. That's how protective they are. And in general, yes, they do protect us against future viral infections with the same strain. But again, We're still learning a lot about this virus. And there was a tense exchange between Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Fauci on this specific issue. So what do we likely know regarding antibodies? Well, a lot of that exchange, Amy, came down to semantics and language and terminology. But here are the theories at this point. And I think that this is important to remember. At this point, it's still a theory that when we have the IgG antibodies, this is what people can be tested for now, that it does inter it does indicate that our bodies have been exposed to COVID-19 infection. Um, We also think that those antibodies do protect us in the future to some degree, based on what we know from other viruses, and that they may have a role in not only preventing reinfection, but in treatment. And then we also think that an immune response 
basically this is the premise of a vaccine, right? So if our bodies make an immune response, yes, that is positive indication or hope that a vaccine can be effective. All right. That is good news. Dr. Fauci also said what we hear you say all the time, that it's important to state what we don't know. So what don't we know right now? Right. And he really did demonstrate medical and scientific integrity with those comments, Amy, because it is so important to remind ourselves and everyone else of what we're still learning. So when you talk about immunology and the immune response to COVID-19, what we still do not know at this point is if these antibodies that we make can actually block or neutralize that virus if we're exposed to it again in the future. We don't know how long that protects will last. And we don't know what role the larger concept of immunotherapy, like treatment with gamma globulin or convalescent plasma, will have in treatment or prevention. So all of that being actively researched. All right, Dr. Jen, we will check back in with you a little later in the show. Thank you. Well, now to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the number of coronavirus cases in the city are trending down. Here to talk about heading into phase two of that city's reopening is Mayor of Tulsa, G.T. Bynum. Mayor Bynum, thanks for being with us. And we know that you were hesitant to lift that safer at home order on May 1st. But because the governor gave orders to open the state, you also decided to reopen alongside the other cities. Why was that and how's it going? Well, the challenge for us was uh, that the governor made the decision based on statewide data, which is his job. Uh, but when you looked at Tulsa County, where we're located, uh, we did not meet the White House gating criteria. In fact, at the time that we started phase one, Uh, Tulsa County was still trending upwards in positive case uh, results. Fortunately, and we're now a week and a half into uh, phase one of our reopening, and and we're now uh, averaging our our 14-day downward trajectory is uh, remaining in place, has uh, throughout this week, which is uh, very positive news. I'm incredibly grateful uh, and and honestly surprised considering that we would expect an increase in cases with more people being out and uh, interacting with more people. But uh, so far, it's been very smooth and very positive. And with that said, you are about to enter into phase two of the reopening process. So what does that entail? And do you think Tulsa is ready for that? Uh, Based on the data, I do think Tulsa is ready for that based on two main things. One, we're maintaining that downward trajectory, uh, 14-day downward trajectory. And two, uh, our hospital capacity here is about four to six weeks now of a downward trajectory uh, and and is still declining in COVID patients in our hospital systems locally. Uh, so we have plenty of capacity should there there be an increase. Oklahoma's phase one was a little different than what the, the White House uh, issued in their guidelines. Uh, we, it was much more expansive. Uh, and so for us, phase two largely uh, means that bars will be reopening on Friday Uh, And then also we'll be raising our social gathering limit from 10 people to 50 uh, in accordance with the White House guidelines. Important to note, though, Mayor, you still believe that Tulsans should wear masks out of respect for others' safety, correct? Absolutely. It is unbelievable to me that wearing a device that reduces your ability to hurt other people has become political. Uh, we're really trying to raise awareness in our community that wearing the mask is not to protect you. It's to reduce your ability to infect other people if you're asymptomatic and don't realize you have the virus. So we're really trying to get that message out there. And I think it's a shame uh, nationally that this has become some sort of political debate as to whether or not people should wear a mask and, and reduce their ability to hurt their neighbors. 
Well, Mayor G.T. Bynum of Tulsa, Oklahoma, thank you so much for your time. We certainly appreciate it today. Thank you. While researchers race to find a vaccine for COVID-19, convalescent plasma is one measure being used to help infected patients fight the virus in the meantime. The Red Cross has been working tirelessly to collect donations, but they need your help. And here to tell us more is the CEO and president of the American Red Cross, Gail McGovern. Gail, thank you so much for being with us. And we've been reporting about how plasma donations from recovered COVID-19 patients are being used to help newly infected ones. But explain for us how this treatment works. Well, first of all, Amy, thanks so much for having me on the show. And it's as you described, a person who suffered through COVID-19 and is now asymptomatic uh, is able to donate their plasma. And that plasma, we collect it, we distribute it to our hospitals, and they transfuse it into patients that are suffering from uh, COVID. And it's been showing promising results Um, We do ask people to be asymptomatic for about 28 days before they do um, donate blood. And so far, we're on a good track to be able to provide the hospitals with the supply that they need. I will say that this is an IND or an investigational new drug. So the hospitals have to be very judicious with who they give the drug to. So right now, Um, They're transfusing patients that are really uh, in dire need. But uh, as you mentioned, it would be great if someday this became a product that that, um, could be used for treatment and it becomes a licensed product. And we want to make sure we have product available on the shelves in case that becomes uh, the case. And Gail, so for people who have recovered, have been symptom-free for around a month, what is the process then for those people to donate their plasma? So we're working with the FDA and all the other blood bankers in the U.S., and we have a website where they can register, and then we either send them to a a blood center that is collecting in their area, or we make appointments for them if we are collecting in the area. And the website is redcrossblood.org slash plasma for COVID, and the four is the number four. Uh, And if you just go on redcrossblood.org, you can search for for convalescent plasma. And uh, I have to say, I am just so grateful that there are people who actually have suffered through this disease, made it through, and are willing to open up their veins to provide convalescent plasma for people that are hurting. It's an amazing thing. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing to witness, and I'm sure you're seeing it firsthand. Thank you so much. Gail McGovern, we appreciate your time. Thank you, Amy. Thanks again for having me on the show. And if you would like to donate plasma or blood, just go on the American Red Cross webpage to learn more about how you can help. And as we continue on what you need to know, the night of solidarity benefiting so many suffering in silence, the hidden victims of domestic violence. Back in a moment. Dr. Jen Ashton joins us now with some answers to many of your questions. And Dr. Jen, thank you as always. Our first question, 
What's riskier for exposure to COVID-19, a group birthday party or a meal at a restaurant? Great question. So I did a deep dive research on this and a very interesting analysis written by a doctor, Aaron Bramage, up at UMass Dartmouth. And what he put together was kind of the viral dynamics, what's been published in the data and kind of compared different settings. So when you look at a group birthday party, for example, again, very limited published data, but there is an isolated case report um, from Chicago that showed that, again, it was close exposure. You have time. You have people eating, talking, sitting together for many hours. And a lot of people at one particular birthday party uh, got sick. In terms of restaurant settings, we, we heard this very early on, Amy. If you go back, there was a published report from a restaurant in China that showed that the airflow dynamics of that restaurant, 50% of people at the same table were sick within seven days, 75% of people sitting at a down wind tables, so the table right Mm. next to someone because of the airflow. So again, I think when you think about these settings and you realize we have limited data, you have to take into account exposure, time, density, how close you are to someone, and then what your possibility for getting a high dose of the virus is. And it'll be different situation to situation. They're both you know, not low-risk environments right now. All right, good to know. Next question. Should hospitals and nursing homes consider installing negative pressure rooms with hand sanitizer mask dispensers outside patient room entrances, especially for patients with a contagious respiratory infection? So two very important strategies here, but when you look at this group of population, the skilled nursing facility, we call them SNFs, or prolonged care facilities, this is literally ground zero in terms of the most at-risk vulnerable population. So they are taking unprecedented steps in terms of prevention, screening, treatment, isolation, surveillance, you name it, it's occurring. In terms of negative pressure rooms at one of those nursing facilities, that probably isn't logistically feasible, but hand hygiene and PPE and screening those people coming in Absolutely. This is the number one priority literally across the country. All right. And let's talk about across the world, because this next question is, it seems we don't hear that much about Europe or Asia anymore. What is going on in other parts of the world right now? Well, this has been a global health emergency from the beginning. And it is important to keep an eye on different countries, different continents, different areas, because as we reopen in some way, shape or form, what's going on on literally the other side of the globe definitely affects us. So just briefly, Asia, we are starting to see cases start to go up again, particularly in Wuhan, China and in Singapore. In Europe, Russia is seeing major, major cases right now. In Africa, we're seeing a surge in cases in South Africa, Ghana, Algeria, and even in South America. So it's not, this is not just a U.S. problem, even though uh, we have the bulk of the cases right now. All right, Dr. Jen, we appreciate it. And you can submit your questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, a heartbreaking consequence of confinement at home during this pandemic has been the reported increase in domestic violence, as many partners are quarantined with their abusers and cannot get away. So to make sure those who need help and support can get it, our next guest is here to talk about Night of Solidarity, an event that will raise funds for violence prevention organizations. And it's going to include some of Hollywood's biggest names, Julianne Moore, Connie Britton, Gabrielle Union, and more. So we welcome Cindy Levy, the former editor-in-chief of Glamour magazine. Cindy, thank you so much for being with us. And I want to first ask you, what prompted you to organize this night of solidarity? 
Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And what prompted was exactly what you just said. We were reading a, a group of journalists um, and other creative types, and I were all reading the headlines that have been out there about this unintended and unfortunate consequence of quarantine and increased worldwide in domestic violence incidents. And in fact, the UN, the statistics that I think really made us sit up and take notice is that the UN projected that for three months of quarantine, there could be a 20% rise, which is 15 million additional cases of domestic violence. So we reached out to domestic violence organizations, the people that actually do the work and ask them, you know, what would be most useful to you? And we heard some interesting feedback from them. First of all, they told us, in a couple of months, you know, depending on where you live, people will be coming out of quarantine. They will be sharing their stories. And it's really important for all of us in the community to know how to respond when somebody tells you what they've been through. And, and secondly, they said, and this is so true, even though this is an urgent situation right now for people who are quarantined in dangerous situations. Domestic violence didn't begin with COVID-19. Even prior to the pandemic, one in four women and one in seven men have experienced intimate partner violence over their lifetime. So this is a real true problem that has roots before. And if we can use this moment to kind of shine a light on it, help people understand it better and help them understand what they can do about it, that will be a good outcome. Yeah. And speaking to that, because, I mean, we are talking about everyone being confined to their own homes. They don't have another place to go necessarily that they can go to. So what are the solutions out there to offer those? And we're talking, as you mentioned, about not just women, but men, even kids from domestic abuse during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. I think the first and most important thing to know is that shelters and help are still available. They are still open. There is no reason that if you are in a dangerous situation that you shouldn't avail yourself of help right now. Every organization that we talked to said that one of their concerns about the media coverage is that it could imply that if you are in a dangerous situation, a life-threatening situation at home, that you have to stay there. No, shelters are open, so that's the first and most important thing. Secondly, hotlines are open, and if you are in a dangerous situation, as many people might be, where you cannot actually make a voice call because you could be overheard, almost all of the hotlines have text features. National Domestic Violence Hotline, you can go to their website, you can chat with the counselor, you can also text crisis text line. And I think one of the important things for anybody in a dangerous situation to know is that that doesn't automatically trigger a call to the police. It's not going to set off a chain that you're not in control of. They're there to talk to you about what you're going through and help you figure out a solution and a safety plan that is right for you. That's good to know. And also, I know people at home want to know how they can help. Tell us how. Well, first of all, Night of Solidarity, tonight, 8 p.m. on YouTube. You can go to Refinery29's YouTube channel and watch, and you can donate. I think that one of the things that really got our attention is that domestic violence is a deeply underfunded area, under-resourced. When you think about giving, think about giving to these shelters, these organizations, the places that actually do the work on behalf of women and children. They are the first responders. They are the first responders and essential workers in the lives of women and children, and we want to support them. We certainly do. Cindy Levy, thank you so much for all that you're doing, and thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. And remember, if you or someone you know needs support, please call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline number 1-800-799-7233. We are back with our special focus on extraordinary essential workers. And as we mark National Police Week, let's meet the officer who is a welcome sight in this Georgia community. My name is Louis Defense. I'm a police sergeant for the City of Smyrna Police Department. 
and I supervised the community relations unit. Serving the community was something that I always wanted to do. Myself and my partner, we go out and do community engagement on a wide spectrum of things. Prior to the pandemic, that was my normal day-to-day assignment. When they made the call that seniors should shelter in place because they were most vulnerable, what I thought of was a way of keeping them in the house was, hey, myself and my partner, we could actually go out, we can deliver groceries. So we are on our way to do our first grocery pickup. Myself and Officer Elliot made a video for the community so that they could see how the program worked, as well as being able to recognize who we were. So when we did show up with groceries, they would know, they'd be able to identify who we are. And we take lots of precautions to make sure that we're safe and we're keeping our community partners safe. As a matter of fact, we've all been issued PPE stuff. On the very first day that we launched this program, we had tons of seniors that were just so appreciative. They're marvelous, fantastic. This takes a load off me. We're extremely grateful for the communities that we serve. And it's just a way to highlight the good work that we do in communities day in and day out. I have a great leadership team here in the city. They challenged us with finding additional ways that we can engage our community. We're just constantly thinking outside the box and trying to find ways to exceed expectations. And I'll tell you, none of this would have been possible without the the leadership of my chief and my mayor to say, absolutely, Lewis, get out there and find innovative ways to exceed people's expectations. How you doing? We've raised over $100,000 and helped hundreds of families here in Smyrna. I couldn't be prouder of our community for stepping up like they have to help the neighbors in need. Watching the impact that we have on people, I'll tell you throughout the 20 years that I've been policing, we all believe in each other. We're people like them. We're just community partners that are tasked with trying to keep people safe and serve them in the most respectful way possible. If I can leave a positive impression on you, make you smile, you know that I've done my job. You've done just that, and you are a hero. We thank Officer Lewis Defense and his entire team for their service. One of America's favorite pastimes is bowling. So as the country gets back to open, between renting shoes, sharing bowling balls, and sitting in a booth, what will it look like now? Here to answer some of those questions is president-elect of the Bowling Proprietors Association of America and owner of Double Decker Lanes in Rohnert Park, California, Jim Decker. Jim, thanks for being with us. And I think the big question is people who love this game want to know, how is it going to look now with this pandemic? Well, um... Bowling will always be and always has been a fun experience. Uh, Bowling centers are staples in our community. They're tried and true and trusted by our customers. Uh, The changes in the practices will be uh, social distancing and rigorous cleaning protocols. All right. Now, does the BPAA have a set of guidelines in place to keep your customers safe, or is this going to be up to each individual bowling alley owner? Yes, the, the BPAA, we have 3,400 member centers in the nation. And uh, so they have a resource guide and we get daily updates on the best protocols to uh, run our visitors safely. All right. And so now I just learned a new term, BPAA. I'm going to refer to it as that now because it's a lot easier to say that way. We should mention in late yeah, April. That's the- I love that. In late April, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp announced certain businesses, including bowling centers, could begin to reopen. And since then, we've seen that happen in other states as well. So what has the response been like in bowling centers across the country? Well, you know, they've only been open a couple weeks uh, in those two states. So it's a little early to tell. But uh, 
the reactions we're getting are favorable. All right, that's good. And so any advice you can give bowling centers trying to figure out when they should reopen, how they should reopen? Well, uh, we just recommend that all the centers follow the BPAA guidelines and um, they have the best protocols and practices. And we just want to bring people safely back to our bowling centers. That makes sense indeed. And I know that we mentioned you're a bowling center owner yourself. So how are you getting your business double-decker lanes through all of this? How are things going for you personally? Well, it's certainly a challenge. Um, we're actually using this downtime to do a lot of maintenance. Um, you know, we're learning how to control our ongoing costs of being closed. Uh, we have no cash flow. And uh, we're just coming up with the best way to open our center when we do reopen safely with, um, you know, having safety for our customers and our employees. Well, we certainly wish you the very best. Jim Decker, thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Our next guest truly represents the phrase New York tough. He is an incredible helper, a hometown hero who is serving his community, distributing food and hope. Joining us now from Rockland County, New York, is Pastor Ed Ivarazza. Thank you so much for being with us, Pastor Ed. We really appreciate it. And first, can you tell us a little bit about your group, the Good News Association? Sure. Uh, The Good News Association actually uh, started five years ago. A group of churches, approximately 20, decided to come together and and, uh, forget about their denominations, come out of the church walls, and impact the community in a special way. Uh, shortly after that, we were approached by a local high school who uh, asked if uh, a couple of people would show up and clean up the front of the school and clean up a courtyard that they had. And to their amazement, 260 people showed up. They remulched the front of the school. They did a beautiful beautification program. And they also uh, converted that courtyard to something that was usable for the students to be able to come out and enjoy during the day. Wow, that is amazing. And now, obviously, we're in these pandemic times, so you've shifted the focus of the organization because you're helping address concerns like food insecurity and providing food to your most vulnerable. Yes, yes, we are. Uh, you know, as soon as this, uh, the announcement of the pandemic came out and it was public, one of the uh, situations that they spoke about constantly was that this pandemic was especially affecting seniors and those that had compromised health. And obviously, there would be some people that would have to be quarantined and not be able to come out of their home. Uh, Immediately, we uh, started mobilizing the church to come and be those uh, grocery delivery people for those that were shut in. Uh, That's the way this, uh, this whole program started. But I'll be honest with you, to our own amazement, although all we wanted to do was deliver groceries, we started to receive donations. And at first, we didn't understand why donations. We never asked for money. And uh, shortly after that, people started to call in and request groceries. But the situation for them was that they didn't have the funds to pay for the groceries. Mm. So that's when we understood that these donations were something that God provided for these people. So we also started to not only just deliver groceries, but also donate groceries to families. Uh, There are a lot of people out there that uh, have no employment at this time, 
and really no funds at this time, not even for food. Yeah, no, it's remarkable. And I know that, yes, you are delivering that much needed food to these people, but you're also doing something more than that. Talk about the overall mission that's occurred when you're making these deliveries. Well, you know, when we make these deliveries, what happens is uh, we come across people, obviously, who uh, their situation is a lot different than just the need for food. Uh, at times, it's a spiritual need where people actually ask for prayer, especially when they've had family members pass away because of this pandemic. Uh, we've had people that have lost parents, that have lost husbands, that have lost siblings. And the, they need em- spiritual e- and emotional help. And we're there to provide that. And we're praying that the church will be there, obviously, to provide that for them also. Well, we are so grateful for all that you do. Pastor Ed, thank you for joining us today and sharing that message of hope. Thank you. And we turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts of the day. Well, Amy, continuing on the theme this week of really letting people on the inside of how doctors think about things, I wanted to share with you one of my favorite sayings in medicine, which is another way of saying common things occur commonly. We have a saying when you hear hooves outside the door, think horses and not zebras. So what does that mean in terms of a pandemic or our health risks? If you go back to January, when we first started to hear about this pandemic, we were all saying, because it was true then, the flu was more of a risk to the U.S. population than COVID-19. Now, of course, things have changed. Things have evolved. So we have changed the message when it comes to that. But I think that saying, common things occur commonly, is so helpful when we try to stratify risk, deal with fear or anxiety or concerns, because we hear things and they are, they can be scary. So you want to be able to say to yourself, what are the facts? How likely is this to happen? And what would I do if it did happen? So Think of that saying because we use it all the time in medicine because otherwise we would truly worry about everything. That's correct. And you're thankfully here for us to help guide us (laughs) through that, Dr. Jen. Thank you as always. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.